Welcome to the Beyond Barriers podcast. If you're an ambitious woman who wants to advance in leadership, then this podcast is for you. This podcast is co-hosted by Nikki Barua, digital innovator, serial entrepreneur, author, and speaker, and Monica Marquez, senior corporate leader, ex-Googler, and diversity expert. From inspiring stories to cutting-edge strategies, you'll learn how to develop the skill set, mindset, and tool set to get future-ready fast and accelerate your success. Hi, I'm Nikki Barua, your host for today's episode. We all have a superpower, but we don't always know what it is or how to use it, or sometimes even when to use it. But when you get this right and learn to harness your superpower, your impact becomes exponential. Meet Fran Mayer, serial entrepreneur known for growing iconic businesses like Trusty and Match.com. Fran shares how her superpower as a brand builder made her such a huge success and helped her create global impact. Fran is now the CEO of Baby Quip, and her superpower as a brand builder, yet again, has already made the company the leading baby gear rental service for traveling families. Fran is a legendary entrepreneur and has won numerous awards and accolades. She was honored by the Stanford Graduate School of Business with the Jerry I. Porras Latino Leadership Award, named one of the 100 most influential women in technology by Hot Topics. Also, San Francisco Business Times named Fran among the 150 most influential women in Bay Area business, and Always On named her among the top 25 women in tech to watch in Silicon Valley. In this episode, Fran shares why it's important to know your strengths and take ownership of what's in your control. She also reveals the lessons she has learned in her career and the principles she follows as a leader. Fran is applying all of these principles as she leads Baby Quip in changing lives and improving the way families travel. Visit imbeyondbarriers.com where you'll find show notes and links to all the resources in this episode, including the best way to get in touch with Fran. Hi, Fran. Welcome to the Beyond Barriers podcast. We're so thrilled to have you. Hi, Nikki. I'm thrilled to be here as well. Awesome. Well, uh, our audience is going to really enjoy this episode because you are a legend who's done so many incredible things. Uh, And I'm sure they're going to want to know more about how you did it and how you got there. But let's dive right in. And I want to ask, start with this question of given all the amazing things you've done that frankly have changed lives around the world, how would you describe your superpower? Oh, that's a really good question. And I think I like to build brands, mm. impactful brands. And early in my career after business school, I worked at Clorox, you know, the product company. And um, I really grew an appreciation of how important it is to position a, a brand, to think about brand values, to get those brand values out. And so when I think about my career, I'm really proud, obviously, of Match.com, which mm-hmm. is still one of the leading brands. Uh, Trustee, which mm-hmm. is an internet privacy symbol that people see all over, which is also a leading brand. And now Babyquip in just you know four years, really, right. we're, we're leading the marketplace. So I really love brands. I think that's probably my my superpower. Mm-hmm. That's and what an incredible superpower because those are legendary brands. Um, so I'm curious, you know, the chicken and egg thing, you know, does the, you know, have you started with the concept 
or a vision of, you know, how it manifests, like how walk us through a little bit about, you know, any of those examples um, and how it came together. Well, I'll give you, I'll tell you the secret. I didn't start any of these companies. Hmm. Okay. So match.com, I was invited to, I was like employee number four or five and it was part of a company called electric classifieds. And I was in charge of match.com from the beginning, but we already had the name and there was an idea of getting people together for romance on the internet. Trustee was already out there, but it was going through the dot-com bust and I came in to kind of strengthen it and turn it around. And baby quip actually was called baby airs. I did change the brand name to baby quip and I, I did found it, but it was with somebody else who had started the baby gear business in the whole marketplace model. So, you know, I do call myself a serial entrepreneur. I've done five different startups, mm-hmm. but there, I'm not, I'm not embarrassed to say that I kind of came in and helped scale and grow these brands. Um, I didn't necessarily start the idea, mm-hmm. but I do think there is maybe a superpower in identifying what, what can be, where where my skill set might really make a difference. Absolutely, because um, you know I've often said you know if all it took w- uh, was an idea, you'd have seven billion entrepreneurs. But you know, an I idea is the beginning. It's all about how you scale and grow it and turn it into movement, which you've done incredibly well. Uh, what everybody, has- everybody likes to know about the Batch.com thing. So should I? Yeah, please tell us more about that story. So, so Match was, this was 1994, mm-hmm. so very early internet. And if I could do it all over again, I wish we were a little bit later. Mm. Okay. And the idea. And why was, is that? Because we didn't know how ahead of the curve that we really were. Mm. There were no real metrics because it was so early. I'll, I'll, I'll jump. Um, so 1994, uh, the idea was to get classified advertising from newspapers onto the internet, mm-hmm. but match.com for this company, electric classified was going to be the proof of concept. And early on, we decided we wanted to focus on women mm-hmm. and we felt if we focused on women, then the men would follow. And so it meant that we had to sort of position it just the right way. So back in the 90s, and you were probably a child, the way online, uh, I'm sorry, the way personals would happen in newspapers were, were that people would call a 900 number and get charged. Yeah. And it was kind of sleazy because newspapers or tricksters would put in ads like, you know, I'm interested in a gangbang. And that would generate lots of phone calls but not really any true romance. Mm -hmm. So what we wanted to do was really position match.com as a clean, well-lit, safe place. Mm. In fact, our first, our our brand values were safe, anonymous, and fun. Mm. Anonymity was really important back then, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And attracting women wasn't just, you know, having colors and things like that, but really thinking about what do they want. And so, for example, uh, one time the engineer came in and said, well, what are the weight ranges we're going to have 
for people. And I was like, we're not going to ask about weight. We're going to maybe do body type. Now, this is back when we had five or six questions that people matched on, and there weren't even photos. So these physical appearance things were really kind of important. The other thing is we, and I had worked at AAA right prior to coming to Match.com, and we instituted a membership model rather than a transactional model. So joining the Match.com membership was important. And then finally, we called it online matchmaking, not online personals. You know, we really want, or or uh, now it's really called online dating. But but the whole idea was to get away from that whole sleazy personals category. Right. So, uh, you know, I, I love the brand values because it really speaks to exactly what that ideal customer profile needs are and what their struggles are. Um, you know, how did that, you know, were there instances where there were business decisions you had to make that were perhaps in conflict with that? And, and how did you navigate through that? Yeah, no, we, um, we, really came up with those values and other rules of engagement uh, as a team. So, for example, when we first started to get photos, we really felt that we want, again, for it to be a positive, clean, well-lit place. And then how do you translate with anonymous then? (laughs) Uh, Well, back then, it was really important to have anonymity. I mean, um, now people are willing to own up to it. But... um, those were the values that we we talked to people about. We talked to our target. We talked to uh, uh, others who might want to partner with us. And we knew we just really had to kind of be fairly clean. So in our men seeking women, women seeking men, they, we did not put nude photos or allow very lascivious. Mm-hmm. Contrary, though, we also looked at the, the community and what they wanted and the men seeking men, for example, was a little bit more comfortable with a little bit more uh, risque uh, photos. So we drew, and, and also a little bit more sexually oriented talk. And that was fine because that was that community. Mm-hmm. So we both developed our brand values, but over time, we also listened to what our community wanted mm-hmm. and adjusted accordingly. How did the company internal culture evolve? Um, and, and align with the brand values. How well, did you design the culture? You know, it was it was interesting, and I would not say it was a good culture. Mm. Match.com, like I said earlier, was a proof of concept. And after some management changes and, and investment and board changes, most of the management team was focused on trying to get newspapers to use the platform for their classified advertising. And, and frankly, it didn't work. And Match was actually starved of funds, starved for marketing, starved for um, engineers, even though we were generating really good income and were the brand leader. Mm-hmm. But because we, to your question, why was it bad to be so early? Our investors still thought of Match.com as potentially being sleazy, mm. and they felt that they had this really big opportunity with newspapers. I'll just let you know that this is before Craigslist mm. or eBay. And okay. once those two emerged, the opportunity really did not come for the rest of the company. Um, also, newspapers were very slow to change their 
to go from offline to online. Mm-hmm. So um, it was a difficult culture and one that I would never want to do again. In the end, Match was sold for less than $8 million mm. to wow. send in. A year later, they sold it to Barry Diller, Ticketmaster, and what became ISC for $70 million. And now the company, I think, has a, a capitalization of $5 billion. Wow. So it was a difficult situation. Um, I think my team, we were very consistent with what we were doing and what we stood for. And, you know, it was fun. We started to get more data as it went on. And we realized that uh, women were very much looking for long-term partners um, at about 28. Mm -hmm. The men were looking for long-term partners closer to 30, 32. Mm -hmm. Uh, we saw that a lot of people were dating more than they had before. They told us that they were dating more and that they weren't settling. They were really looking for the right person. And they love that Match.com gave them that opportunity. What were some of the biggest um, lessons that you learned in the Match.com experience and in that um, both as a leader as well as a you know um, entrepreneur in that journey, that were really you know founding principles in some ways moving forward. Yeah, well, I think I really like the marketplace model, mm. and that's what we're doing with BabyQuip because it's really fun to empower both sides of a marketplace. I also, really saw the the strength of partnerships. So early in Match.com days, we would have partnerships with some of these names are very old, like Alta Vista or (laughs) (laughs) Women.com, where I went to work for afterwards. And we would create um, sort of private labeled Mm. Match.com for these different environments. But the database and, and the overall experience was the same. And that really helped us grow very quickly. I think also, and this relates to the brand value, we won the first internet Valentine's Day. Okay, so back in 1995, we had just launched, we were just free. We were able to uh, win the first, you know, get all the press for the first uh, Valentine's Day on the internet. That was kind of exciting. I think from a leadership standpoint, I have a regret that, I should have taken over Match.com when Electric Classifieds want to sell it. Mm. I didn't have enough confidence. Mm. I didn't have enough support. And I didn't let myself be vulnerable to ask for help. Mm. Okay? And these are lessons I often share with other female entrepreneurs. And probably the number one thing is be confident. I mean, there was no reason why I shouldn't have done that. Mm. And it would have worked out for me, I think, quite quite nicely. Um, unfortunately, I had a do-over. So later in my career, I took trustee, which was a nonprofit, turned it into a for-profit, and raised some money and got, got what I deserved with that, right? Mm-hmm. But with Match, I kind of let it go, and I didn't fight for it. In part, though, it, there were a lot of things. I was a young mom. Mm-hmm. I was very tired. Uh, the culture was sort of beating me down, and um, I, I didn't go out and ask for help. I believe had I gone out and gone back to maybe a group of friends 
or mentors or people at Stanford Business School where I had attended, somebody would have said, Fran, take this over. You can do it. You can raise the money. Take it to the next stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it didn't happen. But I learned that. And the next time I had an opportunity, I took care of it. And it worked out well for me. That's, that's a so it's, it's great if you could have a do-over. You don't always. You don't always. That's true. Yeah, what you describe in terms of the opportunity that you rightfully deserve, but not being able to step into that because of fears and limiting beliefs or lack of confidence, it's something that so many women, both in the workplace as well as as entrepreneurs, um, often struggle with. And I know I've personally been in that situation as in my previous businesses as well, where I've not raised fast enough or not asked for help. Um, what, thinking back to that time and, and when you were faced with that decision, you said you didn't have the confidence. Specifically, what held you back? What was the limiting belief? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I, I just didn't, didn't think somebody was going to give me some money. Mm. You know, and I didn't feel like I had support at home. And I would say that was, that was part of it too. And at the time, I had two very young young children who are now grown men. <laughs> it was a long time ago. Yeah. And also, you know, like I said earlier, we didn't know that we were one of the only companies really generating money and growing. We didn't know that social networks and the explosiveness once once the, the chain will gets going. Yeah. I mean, we were there. We were number one. We were... Uh, and and Match has never given up that that position. So, yeah. you know, now it's interesting because a lot of ways Baby Quip reminds me of Match because we're early stage, mm-hmm. we're a marketplace, sort of in the family space. Mm-hmm. Now the resources are so incredible. You know, for female founders, there are so many organizations. There are. Facebook groups. There are organizations like what you do. Mm-hmm. There are accelerators that focus on women. There's accelerators. Yeah. Back when we were doing match, there were no accelerators. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, and, and, you know, um, so as uh, someone who has repeatedly pioneered innovative new ventures and new markets, what would you say are some of the pros and cons of being early to market? Well, the biggest pros usually are you're able to establish a beachhead, a brand, mm-hmm. uh, following. You know, I, I I think Match it was so early, but so early in the internet, right? So so I think being early to a market and seeing an opportunity. One of the things that that I saw with with Babyquip was that uh, prior to Babyquip, I was an Airbnb. Superhost. I still am actually. And when you see changes like this, and there's been so many, even in the just last five to, to 20 years, everything from, you know, the rise of social networks, uh, mobile, mobile apps. Uh, but I looked at Airbnb and was thinking, you know, this is going to have a big impact. A lot of people not only are traveling this way, but are making extra money this way. Mm-hmm. What are other businesses that are going to emerge? that use this model or even are in, in the travel space. Right. And when I saw a uh, baby quip in, in Santa Fe, which is really actually my uh, hometown, 
um, and that it was doing a really good business in a relatively small town. Mm-hmm. I thought there was a big opportunity for this to go national and to build a brand that people can trust with, you know, baby gear, car seats and strollers and cribs for their babies, toys too. That brings us right to baby quip. So let's dive right into that. Um, so uh, for our audience that may not be familiar with baby quip, tell us about it and what it does for its uh, community. Yeah. So baby quip is a marketplace. We deliver safe, clean gear to traveling families for their babies, everything from cribs to strollers, car seats, toys, all kinds of things. And we do it by leveraging a network of independent providers. These are mostly moms. We call them quality providers. We have 650 of them across the U.S. and Canada. Mm -hmm. And they own the baby gear. They deliver it, clean it, set it up, pick it up. And they make a really nice side hustle. Pre-pandemic, on average, they were making $500 or more per month. Some were making thousands. Wow. What I love about it is we are helping families have a better vacation. Yeah. Because most parents know if the baby sleeps well, everybody's going to be happy. (laughs) I have a couple of investors who invested in baby quit because they're parents of young children. And they almost get teary eyed when they tell (laughs) me how important it was when they arrived to their vacation or the grandparents' house or parents' house and everything was set up that it made such a big difference to them. So I love the impact that we have with families. I also love the impact that we have with our network of providers. Like I said, they're mostly moms. Mm -hmm. So they know what other families want. They really strive to go above and beyond. And I have countless stories of, you know, family, let's say with um, a disabled child, will ask, hey, can you get a shower or chair set up? Mm -hmm. And they'll go and they'll do it, you know, and um, they get a lot of gratification from serving the families, building a business, running a business. Um, And we have a lot of fun with them, too. And we're teaching them how to be entrepreneurs. Right. So recently, we taught them all how to set up their Google My Business. And that's good stuff. Yeah. That's fantastic. What a powerful model. And, you know, the the best businesses are the ones that take massive friction out of the market and create value for everyone involved. And, uh, you know, when um, I think about baby quip, first visual that comes to mind is a, a young family trying to board a plane with all their gear and trying to juggle right. the infant and the toddler and, you know, all of that stuff. And just not just them, but all the other passengers and everyone else being equally mortified at that hustle. So like being able to create this peaceful, you know, fun experience and at the same time, create opportunities for moms everywhere. That's really incredible. So I want to go back to perhaps a little bit about the early stages of Baby Quip. So um, you said, you know, uh, Baby Quip was, um, you know, originally out of Santa Fe and, um, uh, how did you come across it and, and at what stage was it? Um, because you obviously saw the global potential for this. Um, but, you know, tell us a little bit about that early stage. Right. So I was, a, uh, I left trustee or now it's called trust art in 2012. Mm-hmm. 
and was still on the board and was doing different board work and was advising in some accelerators, including one called Women's Startup Lab. Mm. And I was invited to do a talk, much like I'm doing today, and mentor talk to some of the applicants. And one of the gals was from Santa Fe, so I really wanted to talk to her. And she had started a company doing baby gear rental in Santa Fe, but also had the idea of empowering moms in other markets. And at that stage was basically in two markets. And I spent some time with her and we decided to form the company and relaunch it, basically reincorporate it. Mm -hmm. And we did that in May of 2016. Mm. And at that point, I put some of my own money in because I wanted to see, I knew I needed to demonstrate not just to myself, but to potential investors, you know, can this scale? Mm-hmm. Is there demand? And uh, honestly, could we get insurance? Because if we can't insure this. It, it's a category that's, you know, potentially litigious. Mm-hmm. And um, as soon as we started to open up markets, there was demand. Wow. So we really did tap into something that people cared about. And we were able to recruit some really good um, uh, quality providers early on in some big markets. One of them um, is Los Angeles. And and one of the things I think I brought to the table in terms of thinking about it is we have more than one provider in any given market. So the Los Angeles area or Dallas area, we probably have a half dozen to a dozen providers. Mm-hmm. And I felt that if we were going to invest marketing dollars and build a brand, we couldn't rely on just one person. And also everybody would have different kinds of gear. Some places really want high-end gear, up a baby for those in your audience who know all these brands <laughs> versus Graco. I mean, you know, there's just different price points, different brand preferences. A lot of people want car seats just like the one they have at home. Mm. So so we really um, built this by having more than one person in most markets. And that's worked out well to build a brand as well. Wow. Um, so I'm curious, uh, just to clarify in terms of the customer experience then, are the quality providers bringing their own equipment as in just like Uber drivers have their own cars? Yes. Yes. Okay. So they and might so start from out. From a commerce standpoint, when it's listed on the website, they are listing their own equipment on their pages as a quality provider? Yes. Yes. Now, they might have started with their own strollers and things like that, but most of them are building up inventory and they have, you know, multiple cribs and these cribs fold down and have wheels, right? Uh, Multiple car seats, multiple strollers, different kinds of toy boxes. Some of them even rent pet gear and yoga gear and some even blenders for for whatever families might want. And it's been fun over the years. They've done things like uh, for Easter, decorate uh, uh, a yard for uh, an Easter egg hunt. And some of them will even put up Christmas trees and decorate them as well. Wow. So how do you determine pricing on all of this? So they pretty much determine the pricing. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So they determine the pricing and we're fairly transparent so they can see what other people are pricing in different parts of the country or even in their own region. And, um, 
and then they can see what works and we give them the tools to give discounts for longer term stays and things like that. Wow, that's fantastic. So really, you know, if I was a quality provider, the the reason I should be part of this is this a trusted brand, uh, a, you know, a really visible brand. Um, it's providing me with lead generation without me having to do anything. It's providing me with... Oh, we asked you to learn how to do some local marketing. You that's do, okay. Okay. But broadly speaking, I'm still getting the brand effect of getting the opportunities and then the transaction capabilities and and the insurance protection. Right. So we also train them. So we train them on how to clean the gear, how to set it up, how to make sure nothing's on the recall list. Mm -hmm. Certainly something becomes comes onto a recall list, we get it off the platform. We train them on how to market their business locally, especially. And, and we, we give them, we have a Facebook community that they all belong to. And while we give tips and celebrate wins and anniversaries and things like that, they also rely on each other to solve problems or to maybe not a problem, but Hey, I have a big family. They have a three-year-old what toys should I put in the toy box? That kind of, what, what, um, you know, I would say there's been some skepticism that we could keep up Mm -hmm. uh, over all these markets, the quality and so on, but we have our customers give us an 84 net promoter score. Wow. Which is well, right. (laughs) World class, really good. And they're proud of that. And we're proud of that. And we get high marks on cleanliness and safety and customer service. Now, recently, when in March, uh, we bought a baby gear cleaning business, and we've launched that in 100 markets. So now, for local families, we clean those very gross, and, and I'm sure many of your audience will know how gross car seats get. So we clean car seats and strollers and high chairs and things like that for families. Uh, so that's completely independent of even the rental. Yeah. So, so of course, anytime people rent gear, it's clean. Yeah. But separately, because I have this network of 650 providers, so already, you know, so we train them on how to do the deep clean, let's say, call it the detail of the car seat mm-hmm. and how to take off the straps and put it back together again and check things and, and you know, wash the all the soft parts and all of that. Mm-hmm. So that that was a good timely pivot during coronavirus. Right. I can tell you coronavirus has, has been difficult. Mm-hmm. How has it um, affected the business, not just uh, for baby quick, but also the um, the quality providers? Yeah, no, it, it was really tough. You know, um, in March of this year, our episode on Shark Tank aired mm-hmm. on March 6th. And typically... That would have been a fantastic time because we'd be going into the Easter holidays and spring break and times where families traveled. And, um, you know, I had a party on March 6th at my house to watch Shark Tank, but that was the last party anybody I know went to. (laughs) (laughs) So it it was rough. I mean, things went down. We had loads of cancellations through March, very low orders in April. We went ahead and bought the cleaning business, got that launched in June. 
by the summer, some families were traveling. And, you know, from a marketing perspective, we could not say, hey, ignore the pandemic and go travel. So uh, things were looking up and we're still having a fair bit of business in November and December, but much lower than I had expected and much lower than last year. And uh, that being said, my team has kept positive. We've kept up our social media and our other kind of uh, outreach and our community, you know, it's been difficult. We certainly did lose some people, but most of them are, are hanging in there because we all believe and, and I think research will show that when this pandemic is over, family travel is going to be back on and big because families want to make memories and they want to be with their other family members. And yeah. grandparents are desperate to see their, their, their grandchildren. Yeah. So, so we're going to be there to help. Yeah, just, you know, ready for the resurgence when that happens. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, one of the things that, Uh, your business is really doing is not just empowering families to have easier, you know, lives and make memories, but also uh, empowering moms and women to be independent business owners. What if you could pinpoint the invisible ceilings limiting your success? Imagine having clarity on your strengths and barriers so you can take action and gain unstoppable momentum to advance as a future ready leader. Well, that's exactly what the Beyond Barriers quiz will help you discover. You'll get your personalized score based on the 25 essential elements proven to accelerate success in the digital age, so you can understand what's holding you back and where to focus your efforts. The Beyond Barriers quiz is completely free and takes just a few minutes. Go to IamBeyondBarriers.com slash quiz and take the quiz today. Tell us a little bit more about that part of it, the independent business owner, or separate from just, you know, being part of EquipNet. Or what are you learning that, um, what draws them in? What do they struggle with? What are the things that perhaps may not be directly connected to Baby Quip services or products, but that in order to empower them, you've had to help them develop in? Well, you know, first of all, first of all, I think there is a real need for, and maybe it's been around for a long time, you know, looking back at Tupperware or Mary Kay um, or some of these iconic brands, but, but moms want to have a little extra money, hmm. especially, and I would say about 40% of our network are stay-at-home moms mm-hmm. doing this as a side hustle. Um, some are also working full-time, part-time. Um, we do have some retired couples, so this is something for them to make some extra money. But making extra money, I think, is a very uh, a side hustle, a gig job is a very American thing, and people are looking for the right one. Mm-hmm. We found that a lot of our community are when they when they ha- they have degrees, many graduate degrees, and they come a lot of them come from sales or marketing background, mm-hmm. so. So this kind of appeals to them, right? Right. Um, I think the things that they, what I've heard from the community is they came to make the extra money and they're staying because they're part of the community Mm. and are part of an experience. And we work hard to make sure that they're getting, like we have a speaker series. 
of other entrepreneurs or other people to come in. And we had Randy Zuckerberg, one of our advisors, do a talk on how to set up your social media. Wow. I mean, that was really thrilling to them, you know? Um, I think they um, have learned a lot on social media, on how to get their name out there, how to use Twitter, Facebook, and things like that. Mm -hmm. I think they learn a lot about how to manage a business. And, you know, we, at the beginning, we didn't have inventory control. Now we do. Mm -hmm. But how to manage your inventory remains a pretty big issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I don't, I don't think we help them that much, but they do work on how to set up their P and L, how to account for things, how to write things off, what are the tax laws. I could say that that is probably challenging. It's challenging for everybody, right? Wow, but that's incredible. I mean, it's it's uh, really uh, about you know uh, creating this environment of entrepreneurship at the grassroots level. And uh, yeah, I mean, I love the community, and and they they love each other. They support each other. We we had a holiday party a couple uh, a week ago, and that was a lot of fun. So so it's pretty great. It, it, that's what gives me joy every day. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Well. I guess both sides. I mean, I hear from the providers how much that this has uh, enriched our lives. And then I hear from parents who, you know, basically say we saved the vacation. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure. As well as all the other passengers that are also equally impacted by them. Um, I want to get your perspective on... um, female entrepreneurs that are at that early stages where they may have this idea that they really believe in, but perhaps they haven't yet found an eager audience and others. And, uh, you know, there's that thin line between absolute belief and that's, uh, you know, in your vision versus perhaps there's room for improvement, but you're not listening to anyone. How might you guide someone who's kind of trying to figure out their path through that? Do I listen to everyone who's being a naysayer or do I take their feedback and improve this? I think you almost always have to listen to everybody, but have the conviction to decide for yourself. Mm. I mean, there's almost always going to be naysayers, but there are probably going to be some people who are just giving some good advice. Try and take it all in. Mm. I, I think what's, you know, like I, I expressed about uh, Baby Quip that first summer, mm-hmm. I had particular milestones. I wanted to see if we could meet them. If we could meet them, then I thought, and, and, you know, I was willing to put my own money and time into it. And you, if you have the conviction, you got to do that too. Right. Uh, if you can and set up the milestones to, to reaffirm or learn or tell you maybe now's not the time or so on, mm-hmm. you know? So I would talk to as many people as you can, but I would also try and formulate some milestones to make sure you know what you're doing. Um, I'm surprised how often I see young entrepreneurs, not just women, not look at the competitive set. Mm not really consider who their target market is deeply, you know, so it's, it can't be, you know, women just like me, like, let's be specific, certain ages, life stage, 
what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I don't know that a, a lot of startups, especially women, they start up as LLCs, small businesses, and then it becomes more difficult for them to get capital. You know, so do the things that you need to do at the beginning. Incorporate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, try and find some good advisors. And I, I am now of the opinion, and, and I do a little bit of investing, a little less now. Um, but I like to see my startup founders go through an accelerator of some kind. Mm. There are so many. I think all of, you know, certainly there's Y Combinator and, you know, tech. Uh, there's a bunch. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be the top accelerators, you know, a local accelerator. Because that will give some help in terms of helping you not just to find your product and key attributes, but also your pitch deck and give you some some experience pitching to potential investors. Not everybody wants to do that, but I, you know, I think nowadays that is an important step. Mm-hmm. And it's much easier than going and getting an MBA. A lot cheaper. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so speaking of pitching and um you know working with investors what are what is the biggest thing you yourself have learned you know going from a time when you know that was not something you pursued or were afraid you wouldn't get the money to then doing that but also being an investor yourself what are the most important things to keep in mind especially as a female entrepreneur yeah you know the i um for trustee, I raised well over $10 million and helped raise second round. And for uh, Baby Quip, I raised $4.5 million. Uh, it is never easy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it, it is a slog. Uh, I think you've got to really sing the things that are powerful in your story, mm-hmm. you know, and be very confident about those things. Mm-hmm. And I think you've got to um, identify who are the right kind of investors and cultivate them. I think you've got to be uh, good about addressing um, objections. And for women entrepreneurs, you know, many of us have products that are aimed at the family market or the female market. And mm-hmm. We've got to embrace that. We've got to own it and not apologize for it. It is still really, really hard. There are not enough wealthy women or women with big startup wins that are starting VC companies. Um, you know, one of the things that I sadly have to tell many female entrepreneurs who seek my advice that there are not enough accelerators or women's funds. Mm-hmm. And that they are not the panacea. You have got to work and establish relationships with, with men and and impress upon them the benefits of your, your solution or your product or whatever for the female market. They do know that women control the purse string, purse string in many households mm-hmm. and that it's issues. But it, it's been a slog. And I don't, I'd say only in the last few years are we seeing big improvements in funding for female med tech and female and family-oriented services. 
So there's um, a lot of systemic challenges um, and cultural things and social issues that'll take time. There's no overnight panacea to that. But what is within our control, you know, what what would you say to someone who, you know, about saying this is a part you got to own and and completely take charge of? Yeah. So, you know, they've got to create a big vision mm-hmm. that I think other people can, can get behind, show that it's a big market, show that you've got a big solution. Do, you know, women are much more practical. We put together business plans that take the business to X million dollars, not X million times 10. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and that's what the guys do. We've got to have much more confident attitude about what we're doing. I'll give you a couple of examples. I've, I've advised female founders and, and uh, one of them, I love her dearly. She's great. She sent this long email to her advisors and board members. And in the middle of it, she said, oh, by the way, we have a new name. Okay. And I was like, girlfriend, you buried the lead. <laughs> <laughs> And, and and when you think about writing an email like that, think about what a guy would do. And a guy never writes five paragraphs, right? right? No. I mean, you know, maybe I'll simplify, but, you know, have, we don't have to, we, we feel compulsion to explain ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, well, that might be good, and it's good that we've taken the, the time to think through why we're making certain decisions and what supports it and so on. Um, it can come off as insecure, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. So so uh, uh, more than a couple of times I've said to some of my advisees when they're facing an issue, ask yourself, what would a guy do? And, you know, you might get a different answer. That might be a good one. I'm not saying the guys are always right. I'm just saying sometimes we need to have a different framework. Right. Sometimes it's just how we show up that maybe takes away opportunity or gives us some. You know, let's get confident and and maybe a little cocky, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think the other thing that women do is they don't get enough support. Mm. And that's one of the things I learned at Match. I didn't have enough support at home. I didn't have enough support overall. You know, we want to be so careful with other people's money, but then we don't hire that marketing person or use that tool that might save us time or or we don't hire the best person because we want to save some money, but, you know, in the end, you're losing. Right. Yeah. That's that's great advice. Um, let's talk about your vision for Baby Quip looking forward. What is the big vision that you uh, can share with us? Well, you know, I hate to say I have to get out of this pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> um, I think that we are the baby gear experts. Mm-hmm. And we have a wonderful opportunity both with the rental and the cleaning business to own the space and in a different way than any brand can own it. So own it for the benefit of parents. What are they looking for? What do they need? Uh, how can we help them? Uh, you know, we're going through a big change. Millennials and I guess uh, Gen Zers are the, the parents now. Mm-hmm. They're very comfortable with renting stuff. They're very comfortable with uh, gig economy. They very much want to travel 
and explore the world. So how can we help them do that in the most convenient and potentially economical ways? I love that. Well, we're excited to see the growth of Baby Quip and navigating even through this turbulence. We have no doubt you'll come through it and uh, continue to empower um, families, parents, and moms everywhere. I want to end with one last question because I have to go back to your superpower of being a brand builder. For those out there that are wanting to build brands, what questions should they ask themselves? Um, so, so probably a series of questions, but basically why, what, what part of the brain do you want this brand to inhabit? Mm. Okay. What is the space? What is the positioning? What is it that you want people to think when they think about brand and brands are also very much about trust. So where can you improve the trust in whatever brand that you're making? you know, and communicate that. And then I think the other one is who is your target? Really being clear, as I mentioned earlier, on who is this brand for? So who is this brand for? Where is it going to live in their brain or their their mindscape, their brandscape? And how can you make your brand the most trusted? I love it. Well, this is phenomenal guidance to everyone out there. But thank thank you so much for being on the show and to share your story, all the lessons learned, and also how uh, you're, you know, navigating through this year's crisis as a courageous leader. Uh, I know so many people are struggling and uh, will find hope in what you've shared. So thank you so much for being on the show. It was great to have you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Beyond Barriers podcast. There are thousands of podcasts out there, and we are so grateful that you've chosen to listen to ours. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and tell a friend about it and subscribe to get new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Visit IamBeyondBarriers.com where you'll find show notes, links, and the best way to connect with our guests. See you next episode.